meeting and ending practice session where you're now live. All right, fellow commissioners, DPH staff, and members of the public, welcome to the Health Commission meeting of Tuesday, September 5th, 2023. Secretary Morowitz, please call the roll. Commissioner Gerardo. Present. Commissioner Christian. Present. Commissioner Bernal. Present. Commissioner Guillermo. Present. And Commissioner Green. Present. And now I'll recognize uh, Commissioner Christian to offer the Ramatushaloni land acknowledgement. Thank you, President Bernal. The San Francisco Health Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatushalone, who are the original inhabitants of San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land, and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatushalone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatushalone community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you, Commissioner Christian. Our next item is the approval of the minutes of the Health Commission meeting of August 15th. 2023. Commissioners, you have the minutes before you, which you have already reviewed. If there are no amendments, do we have a motion to approve? So moved. Second. All right, public comment, please. Hi, everyone. Uh, let me read a, a script for each agenda item. Members of the public will have an opportunity to make comments for up to three minutes. The public comment process is designed to invite input and feedback from individuals in the community. However, the process does not allow questions to be answered in the meeting or for questions of the public uh, from the public to, uh, I'm sorry, for, or for members of the public to engage in back and forth conversation with the commissioners. The commissioners do consider comments from members of the public when discussing an item and making requests to the DPH. Please note that each individual is allowed one opportunity to speak per agenda item. Individuals may not return more than once to read statements from other individuals unable to attend the meeting. Written public comment may be sent to the health commission at the following email address. The word health.commission.dph at sfdph.org. If you wish to spell your name for the minutes, you may do so during your verbal comments without taking your allotted time. Please note that city policies along with federal, state, and local law prohibit discriminatory or harassing conduct against city employees and others during public meetings and will not be tolerated. We will first take public comment from individuals attending the meeting in person. We will then take remote public comment from individuals who have received an accommodation for a disability. I have given each of these individuals a code to speak when they begin their comments to prevent others from speaking during this time. Finally, we will hear from a remote public comment from all other individuals. There will be a time limit of 20 minutes on the total amount of remote public comment that can be heard on each, each time from individuals who have not received an accommodation for disability. All right, so is there any public comment in the room from, um, uh, this is regarding the minutes of the, okay, yes, then please come up and I have a, I'll put a, three minutes on my timer. And when I note that the time is up, please um, finish your comments. Dr. Ahimsa Porter-Sung Chai, uh, I'm a former physician specialist with the San Francisco Department of Public Health. I uh, staffed a central emergency. Uh, that's what it was called in 1980 at 50 Ivy Street and uh, served as environmental health coordinator uh, for the Palo Alto Veterans uh, Administration. Uh, we uh, didn't have an opportunity to uh, talk about uh, some of the issues surrounding the uh, vote to adopt 
uh, Article uh, 31, uh, and I did want to uh, bring to your attention that there are some simple things that you have the power to do uh, to protect people from uh, violations in Proposition 65 enforcement along the entire western fence line uh, of the Hunters Point Naval Shipyard, people who live on city streets, streets like Griffith, uh, Crisp Avenue, uh, Revere, and Fitch uh, are being uh, exposed to uh, uh, toxins from deep soil excavations that are being conducted along a fence line that does not even have basic humane dust barriers. Uh, that's one of the things that I think that you should address uh, with uh, the revenue stream from Article uh, 31. Uh, many of you uh, are probably not aware that there are industrial grade mining dust curtains. The mining industry has a financial incentive to keep their product in. They want to avoid lawsuits. They want to avoid loss of valuable product, and they have developed dust curtains uh, that are highly resilient, have uh, tolerated uh, typhoons, uh, and uh, can be used uh, to reinforce uh, the uh, Western fence line. Many of you are probably not aware that there is a children's playground uh, within about 500 feet uh, of the uh, Crisp Road entry to the shipyard and the uh, campus of the Naval Radiological Defense Laboratories. Uh, the uh, landfill uh, is also uh, at the boundary of Fitch Street, a San Francisco street. Uh, it has no dust barriers. In contrast, the nuclear waste that is entombed in the Marshall Islands, uh, the area in the South Pacific that was bombed uh, and where at least 100 ships were brought back to the 100 Point Shipyard, uh, that waste is entombed. And in, in San Francisco, uh, we have a situation where people are living literally uh, within feet uh, of a uh, radiation contaminated uh, landfill. I also want to bring to your attention that uh, there are people in campers and homeless uh, uh, encampments uh, along that uh, western uh, fence line. Uh, so in addition to, uh, you know, reinforcement of the fence line uh, and uh, enforcement of Proposition 65 violations, uh, there is also the benefit of a worker your, and your time is on. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. And then um, we have uh, one person on um, the remote. Jaime, please unmute that person. Hi, Mark. It's Patrick Manetshaw, code AA. Can you hear me? Yes, please begin. Um, the minutes for this uh, August 15th commission meeting were reports on page four that Dr. Chow was thankful to hear Laguna Honda had applied for Medi-Cal recertification. Chow asked about the next step. The minutes report, Mr. Pickens indicated that once LHH obtained Medi-Cal certification, the next step report submitting a second follow-up application to obtain Medicare recertification, LHH wanted to obtain its Medi-Cal application approval first. We learned from a Chronicle article the next day on August 16th, the Medi-Cal application was approved by CDPH. 
So when will the Medicare application be submitted? The minutes also report Commissioner Chow inquired how soon admissions through Laguna Honda might resume. Mr. Pickens evasively answered, quote, once Medi-Cal recertification is achieved, LHH will have to revisit its admission status, end quote. That was very evasive. Since Laguna Honda's Medi-Cal's recertification was approved on August 16th, this commission has a duty to inform members of the public of the actual date when admissions to Laguna Honda are expected to resume. I want to publicly uh, thank Dr. Samchai for her great leadership on the Hunter Point Shipyard monitoring efforts. She's a hero in my book, and this commission needs to more aggressively listen to her testimony and take substantial remedial actions to protect our more vulnerable uh, citizens in the shipyard area and out there on Treasure Island. This commission needs to do much more around monitoring that radioactive toxic dump. Thank you. Thank you. That was the last public comment on this item. Commissioner Zemin, any comments or questions before we move to a vote? None. All those in favor of approving the minutes? Aye. Aye. Opposed? All right, the minutes are approved. Thank you. Uh, the next item is general public comment. My apologies. All right, I have a script to read and then we can move on to see who's would like to make comment. At this time, members of the public may address the commission on items of interest to the public that are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the commission, but are not on this meeting agenda. Each member of the public may address the commission for up to two minutes, up to three minutes. The Brown Act forbids a commission from taking action or discussing any item not appearing on the posted agenda, including those raised during public comment. Please note that each individual is allowed one opportunity to speak per agenda item. Individuals may not return more than once to read statements from other individuals unable to attend the meeting. So let's first take uh, anyone in the room. Would you all like to make public comment? Okay, um, then we will go to remote public comment. Um, I see one hand. I may please unmute that person. Caller, please let us know. Oh, Hi, it's Dr. Palmer. I think I'm AA, or maybe yes. I'm WW. I forget. Anyway, um, I um, I wanted to um, follow up with what Dr. Sumchai said. And when are we going to hear from the Health Commission um, about dealing um, with the dangers at uh, Bayview Hunters Point and um, the clearly uh, um, inadequate protection that residents are having from the toxins there. Um, I would like to know when that meeting will be. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, those are the only hands that I see raised. All right. Thank you, Secretary Moritz. Thank you for your comments. Uh, our next item is the director's report. Dr. Grant Colfax, Director of Health. Thank you, President Bernal, and good afternoon. 
health commissioners and members of the public. The director's report for September 5th is extensive, so I will do my best to summarize and answer any additional questions. So some good news to share and repeat is that the long-term future of Laguna Honda Hospital is secure as the state grants Medicaid recertification. This was a major step for the city and county of San Francisco um, in that the California Department of Public Health and the Department of Healthcare Services at the state approved Laguna Honda Hospital for Medicaid recertification, meaning and thankfully that critical Medicaid dollars will continue to flow to the institution. More than 95% of Laguna Honda residents are, rely on Medicaid funding for their care. And therefore this decision ensures that Laguna Honda will continue to serve San Francisco's most vulnerable residents for generations to come. I want to recognize the incredible hard work of the Laguna Honda team, the work that was done across the department. As you know, many, many leaders were deployed to Laguna Honda, especially thank the frontline staff who really uh, pulled together um, and ensured that our quality improvement uh, happened, the partnership with our unions, and of course, the incredible support of our policymakers, including the Health Commission, uh, Mayor London Breed, uh, the Board of Supervisors, and so many others who contributed to this, and of course, our community advocates as well. Um, moving on to the second item, which is very similar to the first item, but just to say that um, our efforts, our quality improvement efforts at Lugan Honda are continuing. They will be sustained. This announcement around Medicaid recertification really represents a new be beginning for Lugan Honda as we ensure that Lugan Honda um, maintains its quality improvement and will be the nursing home, the exemplary nursing home of the future uh, for the rest of the state. I'm also wanted to um, let the commission know that we did apply for our Medicare uh, funding. Our Medicare application uh, was submitted uh, to, to CMS on August 23rd. Uh, we are survey ready and are uh, expecting a survey um, at any time at Laguna Honda, you'll recall that those surveys are unannounced. Next item, uh, with regard to COVID-19, um, the commissioners are likely aware that we are seeing an increase in, in COVID-19 cases, both locally, statewide, and across the country. Thankfully, even with these variants, including the so-called ARIS variant, um, uh, vaccines, uh, particularly including boosters, and Paxlovid uh, appear to continue to protect well from the worst complications due to COVID-19. COVID and due to the ending of the May, 20, May, due to the ending of this federal state of emergency and vast reductions in federal funding for COVID-19 services, um, we have had to uh, reduce our uh, COVID-19 uh, footprint in the community in terms of, of providing services to um, at, at certain community testing sites, and you can see in the report um, where those sites will be closed. And thankfully, we will also continue to offer um, uh, uh, testing um, at Ella Hill Hutch Center and Southeast Health Center, uh, including um, through, through rapid testing. So I just wanted to call your attention to that. We do expect um, the CDC to announce when the fall COVID booster, uh, bivalent booster will be available. We expect that announcement anytime. Uh, right now, we believe that the COVID booster would be available sometime at the end of September or early October. 
our healthcare system will be ready to um, administer uh, those those vaccines as soon as they become available to our network patients. And of course, we will also look to our other um, partners in healthcare to ensure that uh, members get um, their, their booster as well. Next item is to congratulate the Chinatown Public Health Center Teen Heal Internship graduates. Um, the graduation was held on August 5th um, at Chinatown um, uh, Health Center. Um, it was sponsored by Gumloon Asian Women's Resource Center um, and is co-sponsored by the Chinatown YMCA. This program is designed to empower youth to improve their nutritional and physical well-being, as well as foster leadership skills. Uh, the program was started in 2019. And you can read more about how this uh, program promoted uh, healthy uh, living and education uh, in the director's report. Wanted to congratulate two DPH leaders who were recognized uh, through the American College of Healthcare Executives um, Award. The American College of Healthcare Executives is an international professional society of more than 48,000 healthcare executives who lead hospitals, healthcare systems, and other healthcare organizations. Um, and yearly, the American College of Healthcare Executives, also known as APE, um, uh, each year, the the ACHE, um, along with healthcare leaders across Northern and Central California, selects senior level healthcare executives and early career healthcare executives to receive the highly competitive Regents Award. I'm really pleased to say that Karina uh, Clark, who serves as the San Francisco Health Network's Executive Administer Administrator and VP for Health at Home and Integrated Rehabilitation Services, was recognized with the Regents Early Careerist Award, um, which is in and extreme, a, a great honor and, and, and really reflects her leadership. And Baljeet Sangha, who currently serves as the San Francisco Health Network's Chief Operating Officer and the Laguna Honda Recertification Coincident Commander, was recognized um, with the Senior Level Careers Award. So really um, great recognition at a national level of um, the, the leaders we have in healthcare, executive, uh, healthcare executives in the department. Next items are focused on uh, the great work that's being done at ZSFG. Um, just to uh, call out that uh, the California Health and Human Service and Cal Hospital uh, and, and, and the California Health and Human Services um, and Care Hospital Compare recognize ZSFG as a hospital that consistently demonstrates a strong culture of safety across multiple departments in the maternity, maternity care honor role. The 2023 maternity care honor role recognized hospitals that meet or surpass the statewide target aimed at reducing births via C-section and first time mothers with low risk pregnancies. Um, so another indication of great um, medical care that uh, people at ZSFG receive. Also very timely at ZSFG, um, ZSFG, received an opioid team honor role award by the same organizations. This really rec this recognized ESFG for the hospital's efforts to increase access to addiction treatment for patients and, and the reduction of opioid related deaths by placing the hospital on the HHS opioid care honor role. Um, and ZSFG was one of a, over a hundred hospitals that submitted data and uh, was, was uh, recognized for achieving excellent progress 
in making opioid treatment more available to our patients. And as you know, um, with the incredible challenges that we have with overdose deaths across the country, across the state, and, and unfortunately here in San Francisco, this is such an important thing to continue to expand treatment, make sure treatment is available when people uh, want it, when they need it, uh, that every door is the right door. We know treatment works, and this is an evident, further evidence of uh, the efforts we're doing there. Um, and then with regard to um, other uh, wellness activities at ZSFG, really happy to say that um, the, wellness, um, the wellness center has reopened. Um, the Team Leverage August theme of National Wellness Month is a foundation to coordinate a variety of wellness events for staff. So we know that our staff need to stay healthy and well in order to support people um, on their support patients and our clients in their journey of health, health and wellness. So a really uh, nice thing that this uh, center has, has been reopened. And you have our DPH updates in the news. Uh, you, can, you have that link in your report. And lastly, I did want to um, call on Dr. Susan Phillip, our director at PHG, to provide uh, the commissioners with a brief update on further um, uh, work that she and her team have been doing to, uh, uh, at the commissioner's request, um, set a, a, a structure and a timeline for uh, strengthening our community engagement in the Bayview community. So Dr. Phillip, I'll turn uh, over to you and then commissioners, I'm happy to answer any questions about the report. Thank you. And, and Dr. Phillip is joining us remotely. Thank you, Director Colfax, and, and good afternoon, Commissioners. Very happy to have the opportunity to join you again today and to uh, give you an update on uh, the work uh, that we have been doing in, in PhD um, since we last uh, met and, and talked with you and, and heard from community. And we do completely agree this is a really important area of work, as you heard we are pulling together a multidisciplinary team for the first time to really work with community and to, um, to really uh, press for clear information from uh, the Navy, from uh, the regulators, including the EPA, the Department of Toxic Substance Control at the state, and, um, and the Water Board as well. Uh, and so what we will be doing is coming back to speak with you more formally in January for an update. In the meantime, we are going to be joining uh, the communications meetings with the Navy and the regulators to really push for clear communication. We are having our internal meetings uh, on a regular uh, biweekly basis. And, uh, and uh, Deputy Director for PhD Community Health, Asa King, uh, whom you met at our, uh, our last in-person meeting on this topic for Article 31, will also be um, helping lead our efforts to, to reach out to some of the community members that were present at the Health Commission meeting in person uh, to speak with them and to start uh, doing that work of uh, ensuring that communication is as clear and as strong um, as it can be. So that is the, the work that we will be doing over the coming weeks and months that we have already started and that we will continue and accelerate and be reporting back to you in January. Thank you, Dr. Phillip. Um, before we go to commissioner comments or questions, do you have public comment? Sure, is there any public comment in the room uh, on this item on the director's report? Okay. I don't see any in the room. I see one hand raised. Jaime, please. Um, actually, I'm sorry. I see two. So we're, we would um, 
take a comment first from those who have received accommodations. So I've given two folks codes. If you're those two folks, then leave your hands up. If not, then please put them down for the moment. I may please start with caller two and we'll go from there. Yeah, good afternoon. It's Patrick Minutesaw on, can you hear me? Yes, please begin. On page two of the Dr. Colfax's report, he asserts in the LHS update section that Laguna Honda submitted both its application for Medi-Cal and Medicare recertification in August. However, a budget and legislative analyst report posted on the Board of Supervisors Budget and Finance Committee agenda for tomorrow, September 6th, specifically states Laguna Honda's Medicare application was going to be submitted on September 17th. Presumably, the BLA obtained that September 17th date from somebody at DPH. So what is it? Did Laguna Honda actually submit its Medicare application on August 16th, as Dr. Colfax just asserted, or will it be submitted on September 17th? Particularly, why wasn't the background information provided to the budget and legislative analysts of the Board of Suits told that the Medicare application had already been submitted? in your request for the $40.5 million in Laguna Honda emergency repairs. After all, they, you claim that you need that $40.5 million in emergency repairs to assist with recertification. But if you've already obtained it, why is the budget and legislative analysts uh, being had misinformation that the application has not been submitted yet for the Medicare recertification. This is uh, a glaring um, error. Thank you. Thank you, Jaime. Please meet the next caller. Hi, this is um, Dr. Teresa Palmer. Um, can you give us a ballpark idea of when new admissions will resume? I imagine it's after any survey that Medicare will do, um, but um, we do need to know, um, have some idea of when admissions will resume. And then um, is, um, is Medicare certification needed for new admissions to resume or can um, long-term care patients be admitted on Medi-Cal uh, prior to Medicare certification. And when will evicted patients who are still require nursing home care, the ones who are still alive, be readmitted? Uh, there's no indication anywhere in writing that they have any kind of priority. And I, I certainly would like to see that in writing from the Health Commission, that commitment. And it seems to me that nursing home eligible San Francisco residents who have had to leave the county for care should have priority at Laguna Honda, but they do not. How is the hiring of RNs going? Since most of the staff um, that's used at Laguna Honda is not even CNA, home health aides and patient care assistants, 
You need adequate RNs to supervise. How's it going? Um, you're at risk of jeopardy again if there's not enough supervising RNs. And um, how are you going to deal with the um, admission and management of complex and acute behavioral patients? Is there going to be ongoing pressure um, from county hospital to admit patients who can't safely be handled in a nursing home? Is the flow at San Francisco General Hospital once again going to be put over the well-being of everyone else at Laguna Honda and patients who are admitted to Laguna Honda that need another setting? And the, when are you going to waiver for the 20 bed cut? Uh, Mr. Pickens did verbalize that you're committed to that waiver when it be submitted. Thank you. Those are the only two public comments for this item. All right, uh, before we go into commissioner comments and questions, I just wanted to highlight two things. First of all, hearty congratulations to Karina Clark and Beljeet Sangha for, as well as the teams at uh, ZSFG for the maternity and opioid care. That's really great news. I just also wanted to highlight uh, uh, Dr. Colfax from your report that given the pivot in the COVID-19 testing, uh, that we're doing in the community that free kits will still be available at two sites, one in the Western edition at Ella Hill Hutch, and then also in the Bayview at the Southeast Health Center for people to pick up free testing kits to use at home. That's correct, right? Um, as it's written in the report. Yeah, great, great, thank you. Just wanna make sure that it, we, we had spoken it today. Um, Commissioner's comments or questions? Commissioner Gerardo. In the report, though, I, I understand that the t uh, test kits um, would be free, but I think it needs to be publicized or communicated to the public because even here, it's not clear that it's free. So that's, I guess, just one concern. Yeah, absolutely. I'll have Dr. Phil um, talk. She can add um, some more information about what we're doing to allow to help community um, to increase awareness around the availability of those of those kits. Dr. Phillip. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. I, I think that is a really important point. We are emphasizing that the, the test kits are, are free and available at these sites. We are also trying to ensure that other community partners uh, have the ability to uh, obtain test kits. If we have any, we will be sharing uh, with them as well. And, and uh, we will make sure that social media and flyers and other materials do emphasize that the kits are available at no cost uh, at these community sites. Thank you. Thank you. But I have one other comment about um, Article 31. And my, and I understand from, let's say, the minutes of our last meeting that the timeline of reporting back to the commission is January 1st. Am I correct? Of the data and information that you are gathering currently, correct? Dr. Philip, can you, did you hear the question? I did. I believe that it's, I believe that we are scheduled to come back on January 16th, but I will, oh. I will review that time, that date to make sure I'm accurate. But okay, it's that, January. I wasn't specific. It was January. So, um, but my other um, question is we had discussed at the meeting and in the, that there would be, um, more than community engagement just with the 
people that were here that were um, making public comment, but in fact that uh, we would try again with community meetings that in fact the uh, people here at the that were um, discussing the concerns were going to facilitate with DPH for um, a community meeting or community meetings. And so that's what I just wanted to follow up on. Thank you, Commissioner. Yes, we wanted to we wanted to start with smaller groups of people to be able to uh, understand what we need to convey, because <laughs> truthfully, we, we need to have all of the agencies involved participate. And so our goal with these next immediate steps was to be able to bring some information to these uh, agency partners, to the Navy, to EPA, to Department of Toxic Substance Control, to the Water Board, to ask them uh, to, to help us by, by engaging with these, uh, with these um, community requests, et cetera. There are limited things that we DPH can do single-handedly, but one of our main roles is to try to coordinate and try and make the information as accessible as possible. So it will be a combination of trying to get a better understanding ourselves, but then also facilitating so that the agencies who are primarily working uh, right now as the regulators and the primary cl uh, cleanup agency, the Navy, are also engaged with this process of, um, of understanding what the current gaps are from, from uh, community communication from the perspective of residents in San Francisco. And that is our role to really ensure that we're closing those gaps and asking those uh, federal and state partners to to join us in exactly uh, what you said, the community meetings to um, to better understand and to better frame the information that they are uh, sharing. Okay, so my understanding from, I just wanna make sure I understood. So step one is to engage the partners, the Navy, et cetera, to get the information that then you're able to share with um, community engagement to be able to present what you have learned in, let's say, the uh, community, small community meetings, et cetera. Am I correct? It's like a two-step process that you're recommending? There are, there are multiple steps that are, are happening and we're, we're trying to figure out the best way to proceed, but we will, we will reach out to community, but simultaneously we are uh, we are joining meetings that are ongoing uh, with the with the agencies, the federal and state agencies. We're joining their specific communication work groups. Uh, we are doing other things to try in both directions to uh, close the gaps in communication that we we know exist. And that is that is what I think our key role will be is to facilitate closing those communication gaps. So in parallel, we'll be reaching out both the community but also to join these larger processes and. My goal would be to uh, really make sure that that the, that the people responsible for communication at multiple agencies can join with us as we uh, as we engage in the the community process. I know that they feel that they have done that in in the frameworks that they currently have, and there might be additional helpful ways that we can expand that current work uh, with with some guidance um, in in our role uh, at DPH. Okay, thank you very much. I just wanted to be clear on what the the process was. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Commissioner Christian. Thank you, President Bernal. And thank you, Commissioner Gerardo for um, carrying uh, forth this uh, these concerns that we articulated pretty clearly. Uh, 
at a prior commission meeting uh, sub of our subcommittee, but also at the last commission meeting, which unfortunately I was unable to attend due to illness. And so I want to thank all of my sister and fellow co commissioners for carrying that forward. Um, and I uh, apologize for being not being able to be here to help with that. Uh, I'm glad to hear. Thank you, Dr. Phillips, so much for taking um, the time to come back to us with uh, information about how the department will be proceeding. Uh, very glad to hear that uh, there will be there's there's such a strong effort to close communication gaps. Uh, and I assume uh, that I'm not the only one uh, and, and that you share in this concern about not only there being greater communication, but uh, greater um, involvement of the department with the Navy in the earlier stages when they, I understand, I think we all understand that the department has no regulatory authority that belongs to the Navy with respect to the cleanup. But during those cleanup processes, and even after that, shouldn't uh, the department be reviewing what the Navy does and engaging with them about in the areas where the department may feel and the community may feel that their efforts are lacking. And so I understand fully that there's no authority, but I clearly there is the uh, authority to engage and represent uh, the health commission's concerns, our physicians' concerns, and also the community's concerns, and to ask for some engagement and movement around uh, addressing the concerns themselves. Um, you know, this is, uh, we have, you know, this is a, a great institution and we have no higher duty than to protect and preserve the health of the community. And that is done by uh, the department in so many ways. And this is no exception. And given what we are addressing here, uh, the contamination of areas of our city, um, this is something obviously that is requiring the strongest area of engagement. Uh, and, you know, even if it could be contained in one area, <clears throat> which of course would not be um, okay. Uh, it is, uh, I think someone noted, uh, I read the minutes from the last uh, meeting and someone did note that there is no containing uh, contamination like this and it will spread through uh, the waters and to the rest of the city. And so there is a strong and ongoing and unending sadly need to uh, monitor and to address the issues uh, that are found. And so I just wanted to uh, lend my voice to the voices that were uh, spoken already and to um, voice my strong confidence in you and the rest of the leadership of the commission, uh, uh, well, of the department, and also certainly in the commission uh, to address this, um, to take this on in a, a, a much stronger way that, than we have uh, so far. And I don't know whether there's anything else you can tell me about the ways that uh, you are thinking that the department will engage or may engage with the Navy in a back and forth, uh, even when there's no authority or no regulatory authority for the department to um, direct the cleanup per se. 
thank you, Commissioner, and I completely, completely agree with your sentiments. It is, uh, we, we do have a very active role in, in, in working, uh, working on this with the community, with the community in mind and being advocates for the community. And uh, that's what we intend to do. For the first time, we, we do have a multidisciplinary team, which I'm feeling very positive about. I think you've met some of the uh, experts uh, in our environmental health branch presented on Article 31. They continue to follow along very closely for the technical developments um, that uh, that come out of the, the work uh, that is happening um, at the shipyard and the Navy cleanup. In addition to that, uh, we have a deputy director of PhD, Asa King, uh, whom, you, whom you also met, who will be leading our, our overall community engagement work in this area. Uh, we also have uh, Janetris Brown, Director of Communications for DPH, who's working closely on this, and uh, Nena Akoye, Dr. Nena Akoye, who is uh, trained in occupational environmental medicine uh, and is working as part of Population Health Division uh, with us as well for clinical expertise. And I am very closely involved in this work as well. So as you can see, I believe for uh, at this point, we have a very highly qualified team with a breadth of expertise. We're all committed uh, to the work of uh, ensuring community health for the residents around the shipyard. And we are uh, actively going to be actively engaging with the Navy, with the regulators, and talking with community. Uh, again, because I do think that communication gaps are important, but also uh, understanding and advocating uh, for explanations um, of the work that's happening and uh, to really uh, try and make sure that we are doing everything that we can. Uh, to, to advocate for clarity and to advocate for the highest standards. Um, but again, yes, the, the, the main regulators are the EPA, but we do have a voice and we are going to be using that voice and are starting that process now. Thank you, Dr. Phillip. And yes, advocacy, uh, I agree with you 1000% that we're here to advocate on behalf of the community and to act uh, on behalf of the community. And uh, to that point, I think that, you know, I am not a physician or a researcher, but uh, it does seem to me that there is a strong need for there to be uh, ongoing levels of testing in the community uh, to ascertain the levels of uh, foreign substances in people's, uh, people's bodies. I know that the community has come forward with um, evidence that they have presented uh, of higher levels of heavy metals and uh, other things that are very detrimental to health. And, I, and it would seem to me that assuming that that is uh, documented, that there would be a reason to have, to set up a, a testing regimen for people who are living closest to these sites to monitor levels and uh, to understand, in another way, to understand what may be happening in those sites. Thank you for your, Thank you. go ahead. Well, we will we will certainly be we will certainly be um, talking with uh, with federal experts, state experts, and academic experts, and um, certainly will be advocating for the state of the art um, in relation to to whatever interventions should be put in place by uh, by by federal state uh, partners or by us um, as as a, as a city. But we do want to make sure that we fully understand uh, the current state, as you have said, and then can work on solutions and countermeasures based on uh, based on the state of the science uh, by, by the experts who work in these areas. Thank you, Dr. Phillip. I know I'm not the only one that has a great deal of confidence in you and your team in moving forward on this. So thank you for your work. 
Vice President Green. Yes, well, thank you so much. And I certainly couldn't have said this more eloquently than Commissioner Christian. Um, you know, clearly it's gonna require a tremendous amount of advocacy. And I think your team is so well assembled and hopefully will really be able to synthesize all of the input. You know, so much of this you don't know until people have lived in these areas and the reports of the cancers that we heard at the last meeting were really, you know, of grave concern to all of us. And of course, unfortunately, more and more, especially with radioactivity starts to surface after, you know, allegedly things have been cleaned up. So I, I hope also that as you report to us, you can give us a flavor for the kind of response you're getting. I, I think, you know, there are some concerns probably on the part of a lot of people that depending on who takes over in 2024 that there, there or 2025, that there could be, um, you know, really stripping of the funding as well as the um, priorities of the EPA. I'm not sure about the Navy, but if, if you could give us some um, guidance and understanding, because when multiple um, bureaucratic organizations are involved, sometimes, as you know, there's there's significant gridlock in terms of really moving forward. There have been suggestions that the public has offered of, of ways we can we can manage things. The, the curtain idea you just was just brought up today, and I just wonder if we can learn as as you interact more with the people who really do have oversight and, and regulation. Um, what we can expect so we can at least level set and advocate more strongly if, if we need to. So we really appreciate uh, hearing a little more about your interactions and, and what your senses of how things might might unfold. Um, and, and I guess I had one other question about about COVID, um, which which is, um, you know, people are concerned, about obviously, the clarity of people understanding the testing is free. But I know there's a lot of uh, confusion about the actual um, uh, cost of vaccines, um, in particular with the emergency over. I know a lot of people are concerned their health plan won't cover it or it may be inaccessible. I think there could be a significant problem for, for pediatrics if, if the um, uh, children aren't being seen in clinic because uh, apparently the newest uh, vaccine is going to be multivial which will make it very difficult for some places to be able to purchase. It's extremely costly. And if you don't use all the doses, it goes to waste. And I gather also the companies are not going to um, rebate unused doses. So I'm just wondering in, in terms of both public information, but also, you know, our responsibility to community at large in San Francisco, including our, our healthcare partners, how, um, you know, we might uh, provide more information because it would be horrible if people didn't get the vaccine because they were fearing uh, out-of-pocket costs. Yeah, absolutely, Vice President Green. Thank you. Thank you for your comments, both about um, uh, about the shipyard, but also about, about COVID. And, uh, Really, as Director Colfax said, we are we are waiting to to hear the CDC recommendations and more information about the formulations and the way that vaccine will be made available for people who are uh, uninsured or otherwise unable to afford vaccine. We are uh, being told that uh, there will be opportunities in place and there will be programs in place, federal programs in place to ensure that. But uh, right now, I don't have, unfortunately, additional details to share with the commission, but we certainly will as soon as we're able to, to hear more about how that may look. And I agree with you that we we want uh, San Francisco to really maintain its standing as one of the uh, most highly vaccinated cities, and particularly with this new uh, formulation of vaccine as well. But as Director Colfax has also said, we all know that we have uh, fewer direct resources to do that. So what we will try to do is share information and um, allow all of our community partners and health system partners um, to pass that information on to the people that they serve and work with as well. 
Well, th thank you so much. And as the um, film attests, uh, we, you have always done a superb job in this department with both communication and distribution of vaccines. So we have great confidence that, that uh, this uh, new iteration of vaccine will be no different. So thank you very much. All right, commissioners, other comments or questions? Mr. Christian. Thank you. Uh, I just also wanted to join uh, President Bernal in uh, congratulating the leaders in the, uh, the department on the AIC awards. Uh, that's wonderful to see that uh, the rest of the country continues to recognize what an amazing staff that uh, we have here in San Francisco. I also was very interested in the, the Teen Heal internship, and I wonder if that is only at the Chinatown Public Health Center or whether that program exists outside of um, the, that particular health center because it's such an, uh, an amazing and important uh, piece of work to, to be doing with, with uh, the youth in our community. And if it doesn't presently exist outside of Chinatown uh, Health Center, I think it would be great if we could look into trying to expand that to increase the foundation of uh, the health for the young people in our community. I appreciate the question, uh, Commissioner. I, uh, Dr. Hallie Hammer, I don't know if she's on remotely, um, may have the answer to that. And if not, we will get you um, an answer about whether that's specific to Chinatown Health Center. I believe within DPH it is. I just don't know if there are other uh, uh, entities that are also um, home sites, for the lack of a better word, for, for the program, but we can certainly get that information back to you. Yeah. and. Dr. Horton. Dr. Horton. Okay. Yeah. Dr. Horton. I'm so sorry. Dr. Hammer's on vacation, and I don't know the answer to that question, but I will uh, find out and loop back. Thank you both. And, you know, huge congratulations to the Chinatown Public Health Center on that work. Really thankful for it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll move on to our next item, which is the Finance and Planning Committee update, which will then flow into our consent calendar. Uh, for today's update, uh, we have Commissioner Guillermo. Thank you, President Bernal. I had the uh, opportunity to and uh, uh, stand in for Commissioner uh, Chung uh, for the finance, today's Finance and Planning Committee meeting. Uh, at the meeting today, we reviewed uh, the September contracts report, which listed uh, six, I believe, uh, uh, contracts that were both um, renewals of existing programs and extensions or uh, contract amendments uh, for others. Uh, and uh, we recommend those uh, six for uh, approval on the consent calendar. Uh, in addition to the six that were reviewed uh, in the contracts report, we had, I think it was eight uh, new uh, uh, grant agreements and contract agreements uh, that, um, again, we recommend to the full commission uh, on the consent calendar, uh, just so that um, have a little bit of context for the new ones. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give a brief description that, uh, first was Asian and Pacific Islander Wellness, um, uh, which operates as a San Francisco Community Health Center, a new grant agreement to um, uh, perform ten, ten, the Tenderloin Night Navigator Program, which um, uh, is, again, it's a new program uh, that is um, going to provide, I believe, uh, 
7 p.m. to 3 a.m. or three, uh, um, services in the Tenderloin uh, to provide trauma-informed uh, mental health uh, care, hygiene, and referral services on the nights and weekends. Uh, the second is the Marina Security Services, which is the uh, the process of uh, bringing in um, security services for our facilities that are uh, that um, allows us to um, have uh, less of a dependence on the uh, sheriff's office or the sheriff's uh, yeah, sheriff uh, services, and um, that contract is a new professional services agreement. Uh, a, a new professional services agreement with the PSJ provider recruitment. This is an attempt, again, a, uh, sort of a, uh, a new and uh, different attempt to try and recruit uh, high-level um, exempt uh, um, positions within the department that are particularly difficult for uh, um, to recruit um, primarily uh, cl clinician leaders, I believe, and uh, other um, executives. And so this is the uh, first time using this particular uh, um, provider service, and it's a 12-month contract. The next um, is a, a contract with Richmond Area Multi-Services uh, to hire and train peer counselors uh, to provide low-threshold uh, care management to unhoused uh, individuals. Uh, it's a, a program that is uh, integrated with the um, best neighborhood street-based behavioral health care teams. The next is uh, a, approval of a contract with uh, Luna Health. Um, this is an interesting uh, one also that uh, uh, will provide uh, non-categorical uh, support uh, workforce development uh, training programs for the department. Uh, the next is a contract with Health Services Advisory Group uh, to provide ongoing uh, uh, support to La Laguna Honda uh, Hospital uh, to uh, really um, um, help with the sustainability efforts post-certification, uh, uh, recertification uh, from Medi-Cal and Medicare uh, and to transition uh, uh, Laguna Honda from that recertification uh, focus to really um, uh, an ongoing and uh, level of professional and uh, uh, clinical patient safety and compliance with the regulatory framework uh, that uh, Laguna Honda is subject to. Uh, the six are uh, the the next and final um, request for approval were two facilities maintenance contracts, uh, new contracts. Uh, and they're listed there uh, for for your information uh, and recommend uh, all of these for um, approval in the consent calendar. I think that was the bulk of uh, the uh, the agenda, um, the, the meeting agenda for today. We uh, deferred one item, uh, which is the Finance and Planning Committee calendar planning uh, to, to the absence of two of the members of the Finance Committee. Thank you, Commissioner Guillermo. It was good to review these contracts with you today. Uh, do we have any public comment on this item? Sure. Uh, do I see anyone in the room? No one in the room. Um, I see one hand. And actually, I'm going to make a quick addendum to what Commissioner Guillermo noted for the HSAG contract commissioners. Um, uh, Mr. Sangha mentioned that 
uh, it would be about sustainability, but it might be about quarterly meetings and um, kind of temping, um, tempering down over time, not the day-to-day -day engagement that they have now. So just for your information, it would be something on an ongoing, like long-term basis. All right, so Jaime, let's um, unmute the caller and I will put the timer on. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I take it we're on, this is Patrick, I take it we're on agenda item five and um, I'm just seeking clarification, Mr. Morowitz and uh, Commissioner, um, uh, about the process in the actual consent calendar for the next agenda item, so that you'll be taking public on both the specific contracts listed in the September contracts report separate from um, discussion of the uh, policies and procedures for the two separate hospitals. Is there going to be two public comment periods? Uh, you know, we don't answer questions, Mr. Manachal. I will answer that. Uh, I can address that in the next item. Do you have do you have more comments, or is that the end of your comment? No, no I was just asking you to clarify that at the start of the next agenda item, please. Okay, thank you. I mean, we're done on that one. Any commissioner comments or questions on the uh, finance and planning committee? All right, then we move on to item six, which is the consent calendar. And if I may note, um, public, this is one item, and there is one opportunity for the public to make comment on all of these items because there's one vote on all of the items. So um, right. I, I believe there's uh, that yes. you're going to introduce. So yes, it is one vote on all of the items, and we'll take a motion to approve after we get a quick summary of those. We just received the summary on the contracts report and the individual contracts. Um, we'll also hear briefly regarding the ZSFG policies and procedures, as well as the LHH policies and procedures. Vice President Green will be uh, presenting on the ZSFG policies and procedures. Yes, well, thank you. The JCC at ZSFG recommended that we approve the rules and regulations for emergency medicine in the pediatric service, and then the standardized procedures for the advanced practice clinicians for Family and Community Medicine, Primary Care Clinic, and the Department of Medicine. All right, thank you, Vice President Green and Commissioner Guillermo for the Laguna Honda Hospital Policies and Procedures. Uh, yes, for uh, those policies and procedures, the, um, the JCC for Laguna Honda met and uh, asked for uh, requested revisions to certain of the policies that were presented for uh, recommendation. Uh, at that uh, JCC meeting uh, prior to uh, bringing a recommendation to the full commission, those policies were revised and provided uh, the language to, uh, to the JCC members uh, in time for uh, this meeting. In particular, uh, there was a concern about the, or questions um, for revision around the admissions policy and the prioritization of um, uh, the admissions, uh, oh, one that was um, a particular concern, and I'm calling it out just because it was a, a uh, one of the key revisions that was requested, uh, had to do with the first uh, articulating in in the policy the first priority around residents who were involuntarily transferred um, out of the facility 
uh, during the time uh, that Laguna Honda was decertified uh, and now will will be the first priority when uh, um, Laguna Honda begins to evaluate the new admission requests uh, based on uh, the admission criteria. Uh, so beyond that, um, the um, JCC recommends uh, the listed policies and procedures for uh, consent All right. vote. Well, thank you to the Finance and Planning Committee and the JCCs for both Zuckerberg, San Francisco General, as well as Laguna Honda for your hard work on these items. Uh, our next step is to have a motion to approve the consent calendar. So moved. Second. All right, uh, we'll move to public comment. Sure, and I will also note, based on what you said, Commissioner Guillermo, that the Laguna Honda policies were also posted on Saturday morning with time for the public to see as well. So uh, I see one hand, I may please unmute that, or say two, you can do caller two first and then caller three. Caller, please say something you're there. Yeah, it's Patrick, can you hear me? Yes, please begin. Um, this is a sunshine violation that you're taking what is essentially two separate uh, items that should have been uh, separate agenda items and denying the public an opportunity to comment on both the actual contracts and the policies. Shame on you for violating the Sunshine Ordinance. It's troubling seeing on the contracts report that you're seeking approval for a fourth contract for HSAG for another $10 million. That pushes uh, the contracts to date for all consulting for Laguna Honda up to um, $40 million. Um, uh, because the um, uh, uh, commission and department is requesting $40 million in emergency repairs to Laguna Honda, that will occur long after recertification is obtained. This is another $50 million expense of, uh, in costs uh, ostensibly to obtain full CMS recertification. But if recertification has already occurred, and since the emergency repairs are actually deferred maintenance dating back decades, why is this $50 million necessary. I recommend that you reject approving the HSAG contract. It's justification being presented to the Board of Supervisors does not indicate it, it does not indicate that it's transition work. Instead, the justification uh, included on the contracts report submitted for your consideration today essentially says that HSAG will continue doing the same kind of work and not uh, uh, transitioning work um, following obtaining the recertification. People are not being honest with the public about why there's $50 million in expenses, including the $10 million for the uh, fourth HSAG contract is even really necessary to obtain recertification. Uh, 
the previous contracts with HSAG said that uh, they would be uh, preparing Laguna Hunter Hospital staff for handoff, and that's already been accomplished under the previous. All right, Jaime, please unmute caller three. Hi, this is. Dr. Palmer, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me now? Yes, start now. Okay. Okay. Um, you can hear me. Yes. There was okay. I don't see how you can vote on um, the 2001 um, uh, revised subsection on admission priorities if it hasn't been publicly discussed, and um, the um, Subsection is confusing in that it says that uh, people who need um, a nursing home and aren't in a medical facility but are receiving nursing home care have priority. Don't they just need nursing home care? Why do they have to be receiving nursing home care? It's very confusing. And I still, um, I mean, it is good that you're putting as first priority um, admitting residents um, who aren't in a nursing home who need nursing home care, but how are they going to get nursing home care if they're not in a nursing home? It's very confusing. And, um, and then um, health network facility patients, wherever they are, have more priority than people who have been evicted from Laguna Honda, people who um, are suffering out of county. Um, it, it doesn't make sense to me. This is still um, weeks of the flow project and um, shoehorning into people from Laguna Honda to keep beds open at San Francisco General and not Laguna Honda being the citywide facility for elderly and disabled that it should be. And I urge you to look at these priorities again to make sure that people in the highest need are first priority, and that is stated clearly, people who are in the most danger. And um, and also make a level playing field for people that need to be in Laguna Honda, uh, second and third priority between people who are in San Francisco Health Network and people who are not. It should be individualized. Elderly and disabled who are at risk by not coming to Laguna Honda should have priority no matter what facility they're in, and um, especially if they've been dumped out of county. Thank you. All right, those are the only two public comments for this item. And commissioners, just for your edification, those who are not on the JCC, the Laguna Honda JCC, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, the JCC did ask for the admissions policy to come back for review in six months to, to check on the how it's being um, implemented. All right, we have a motion and second on the table. Commissioners, any comments or questions? All right, seeing none, uh, we'll go to a vote. All those in favor? Aye. Uh, Aye. Opposed? Aye. All right, the consent calendar is adopted. Our next item is uh, DPH Security Services Staffing Plan Update. Uh, we have our Director of Security, Basil Price, here to present. Welcome, Mr. Price. Good evening, Commissioners. Basil Price, Director of Security for DPH. 
want to give a just a brief background before we go into the actual uh, PowerPoint. <clears throat> so DPH has an actual security management plan that we review on an annual basis to determine, you know, the opportunities for improvement. And so in 2001, after reviewing our security management plan, we proposed a staffing plan to appropriately staff our goals by reducing law enforcement, as well as to align with CMS's uh, guidelines with regards to the use of law enforcement interventions when it came down to uh, patients or individuals in the hospital. That plan included the uh, using uh, psychiatric technicians as well as psychiatric nurses to perform or function in the uh, Behavioral Emergency Response Team, or BERT. It also included using non-uniformed sheriff's cadets to operate as healthcare security ambassadors, both of these at both General Hospital as well as uh, Laguna Honda Hospital. You can go to the next slide. So since 2001, there's been a number of different changes and modifications to this plan, which I'll be updating you on this evening. Uh, one driven by the fact that the delay in the RFP process to hire the patient community ambassadors, uh, as well as the challenges with the sheriff's office with regards to staffing. And so the timeline, which was originally set for uh, March 2022, was actually pushed out to uh, October 2023. And so this presentation is to provide an update as far as the operational status and the areas that are listed there. You can go to the next slide, please. So the original proposal for Zuckerberg General Hospital was to reduce the number of sheriff's deputies by 11.4 and add 29.4 uh, BERT psychiatric nurses and technicians, and also to um, implement the BERT program incrementally within phases beginning in March through May the 22nd. The update is that the, uh, since July the 22nd, uh, the Sheriff's Office was unable to actually staff at 11.4, so there wasn't a need for a two-year period to do the reductions because they didn't have the staffing uh, to schedule those positions anyway. Uh, and then so effective July 1st of this fiscal year, we officially removed those positions from the work order. Uh, the inability for the sheriff's office to actually staff those positions is primarily driven by um, just challenges in hiring uh, it's not just with the sheriff's office, but just the city's challenges with recruiting law enforcement uh, is what's driven this all across the uh, city with regards to law enforcement. And had it not been for those uh, challenges, then uh, I believe that the sheriff's office would have been able to uh, staff those uh, positions. Next slide. As I mentioned, BERT was to be implemented in phases. In 2002, we had completed the first phase, which included having the existing psychiatric staff to provide support in the emergency department as well as throughout the hospital campus. Uh, the update is that the BERT program is fully implemented, even though there are some challenges with regards to 11.4 openings. 
the whole objective behind the Burke program was to add a 24-7 dedicated Burke team to the emergency department, which has been done. In addition to that, they were to provide support throughout the hospital as well as the clinics, which has been done as well. And so if we were to be able to fill those additional 11.4, we're doing a lot, but we would be able to do more. Things such as providing additional support to the outlying clinics on the campus, as well as right now where BIRD is focused primarily on the emergency waiting room and then the uh, what's called pod A, which is where our psychiatric patients are. The original plan was for BERT teams to be assigned to each, all three of the uh, treatment pods. And so that's still a goal that we're trying to reach. On a monthly basis, I receive an update from the uh, BERT manager. And, and what I understand is that we originally, there were 29.4 FTEs dedicated to BERT. The height of that hiring reached 19.9 FTEs. At that point, they began to lose staff who had resigned just based on the fact that they were commuting from Sacramento to San Francisco. And so that coupled with the challenges as far as delay in the onboarding process with HR, to which the BERT manager cites that more than seven months would go by before they had received an application. That in addition to that, currently there are no psych tech schools in the Bay Area. There was originally one in Concord, which is now closed. And so that coupled with the other issues, and then in addition to that also, hospitals are now adopting this model of psychiatric nurses and birth support. And so not only are we trying to get staffing, but we're also competing with other hospitals who are also recruiting in their areas uh, for this particular type of model. The plan also include that during this implementation process, the sheriff deputies would continue to be on site so it would be overlapping. That continues to be the case in the emergency department. However, as I mentioned, the fact that they weren't able to fill those 11.4 positions, they weren't able to accomplish that operating at about a 30% vacancy rate. Let's go to the next slide. The plan proposed that the cadets would go into a non-traditional military uniform, which was accomplished. And we would also reduce two of the 42 cadets so that those cadets who were assigned to maternal child health and, and the uh, information, hospital information desk would actually be performed by health workers to provide greeter services. Again, here's a situation where the sheriff's office was not able to do any effective recruiting with the, uh, for the cadets as well as get buy-in from the sheriff's office with regards to the scope of training them as hospital ambassadors based on their own uh, department policies. So as a result of that, we began to work with OCA, the office, city's Office of Contract Administration, through their contract with security staff to actually provide 46.5 FTEs to begin functioning training as in healthcare security 
functioning as healthcare ambassadors, uh, as well as administrative policies were revised to clearly define the security officer's role, authority, and jurisdiction functioning at General Hospital, as well as at uh, Laguna Honda. We look at the 40 FTEs for sheriff's cadets. It actually comes up to 2.5 million compared to the uh, 46.5 private security. I'm sorry, private security is 2.5 and the sheriff's cadets is 5.7. And so the private security has been in place functioning according to this plan since uh, 2022. Let's go to the next slide. Number of changes that have occurred since we originally proposed this plan at Laguna Honda. Uh, originally, the plan was to reduce the uh, 4.2 deputies and add 8.2 non-uniform cadets. We did reduce the deputies. However, here again was a situation where we couldn't get buy-in from the sheriff's office in addition to their staffing with regards to, at that time, one of the needs was for them, the, share, the cadets to actually participate in clinical searches, which went against sheriff's policy. A lot of things have changed since then. Uh, and then we were going to add three uh, psych nurses or BERT at Laguna Honda as well. We went from not hiring the cadets to actually using that to fund 16 health workers to perform that role. And then that eventually evolved into using those not for health workers, but to be a part of the BERT under the management of hospital nursing. And that's where that plan currently stands at this particular point. However, there was still a need for security services based on the fact that part of the corrective action plan for Laguna Honda was that we needed to staff 24-7, eight key gathering, resident gathering places to deter and surveil any type of contraband as well as illicit substances. And so once again, we reached out to OCA, who provided the uh, 34.6 under their contract. So one of the questions was whether this was a DPH or a sheriff's office contract. It's neither. It's a contract with the uh, OCA. Let's go to the next slide, please. In four locations, as you have listed there, we were to replace those de deputies and uh, contract out with uh, community-based organizations to provide client safety services. Uh, the RFP was finalized in January of 2022, was approved by the uh, Civil Commission, Civil Service Commission, and the uh, contract was awarded in 2000, uh, June 2023 with a plan on implementation in October 2023. Regarding the training of the CBO that's hired, it will be consistent with the same healthcare security training that the private security that we had originally planned out. Uh, in addition to that, they will also go through nonviolent crisis intervention and be certified in that course upon their first day. 
They also have to go through the uh, DPH required training regarding trauma interventions, de-escalation, illicit biases as well. Next slide. So under the current state, one of the drivers for this plan was just the increased use of force by law enforcement against patients. And so we see here at the chart on the left, that there's been over a four year period, a 10% decrease in law enforcement use of force with a 25% decrease from the previous year. We still have disparities in the fact that black African-Americans are still the highest uh, subject to use of force by law enforcement being 46% subject to force or uh, 161 out of 360, uh, 353. In addition to that, uh, sheriff's deputies, the primary role of their use of force has been assisting nurses with restraining patients, which is really the role of a healthcare provider of the Berg team. And so that's again, something that we're working with as well. Uh, we looked at use of force when it came down to high risk areas and the majority of use of force against black African-Americans occur in the emergency department at 36%. And so as part of our security equity countermeasures, which is one of the uh, drivers for initiating BERT, since BERT's implementation, uh, they have been called for 4,000 more service calls activations than the sheriff's office. And so that tells us that our staff are starting to utilize this resource and they've been trained as to when to use BERT as opposed to using the sheriff's office. And so we start seeing this increase as far as how they're working with patients as well as how they're addressing these issues of escalating behavior. In February, 2023, when the sheriff's office, I mean, when BERT, started staffing 24-7 in the emergency department, uh, over 3,000, about 3,000 proactive ED activations, 85% of these were without law enforcement. Then when you look at the chart on the right, through these proactive BERT activations, Black African-Americans were the highest to to receive support from BIRD. And so it shows you the difference between the outcome of calling a law enforcement to a situation as opposed to calling a health professional that's trained to determine when an individual is in distress. And so we see that based on these numbers here. Next slide. We can go to the next slide. And again, this just reiterates the training that uh, the BERT team provides for staff as far as education to address those disparities as far as in what situations you would call the sheriff's office, when you would call BERT, the difference between their two roles. They also receive training in critical decision-making, conflict, manage conflict management as well. And last slide. So in my closing, there was a question with regards to the outlook on hiring and, and reaching the FTE staffing goals uh, for the uh, security plan. 
based on everything that I've shared with you currently, our staffing levels have reached that the plan didn't go how we originally planned. But when you combine the sheriff's office, the cadets and the private security, we are at that plan operating it since 2002. And at this point it's proven to be successful as you go on each one of the uh, doors of the hospital, you have them providing greeter services as well as a number of different other value added service where they're working and interacting with clinical staff to actually address patient safety, which is something different than just the law enforcement model. So I'll start right there and I'll turn it back over to you, Mark. Before we go to commissioner comments or questions, do you have any public comment? Sure, um, I see one hand. Folks, we're on item seven. If you'd like to make public comment, please press star three. Jaime, please un, um, unmute that one caller. Yeah, it's Patrick Winnetchaw, can you hear me? Yes, please begin. Apparently, the behavioral emergency response staffing at Laguna Honda uh, that was identified as being necessary in January 22 uh, included adding private security of 34.6 FTEs um, in an outsourced contract for security officers in March of 2022 before the decertification in April and development of an action plan milestones uh, subsequently began. Basal prices uh, report didn't include the costs for the 14 FTE health workers, nor is there a breakout of what job classification codes are involved for those 14 health worker positions or job classification codes for the three psychiatric nurses positions. But it's likely that those additional 17 PPH uh, employee FTEs will probably run another 2 million on top of the 1.6 million for the outsourced uh, contract for security officers. That totals a total of 51.6 um, behavioral emergency response team members. It's kind of alarming that uh, there is so much contraband uh, coming into Laguna Honda that you would need 50 uh, two FTEs to try to deal with it. It tells me that there's something else wrong with Laguna Honda uh, and the patients who are being admitted. Uh, if you need 52 FTEs to get a handle on this problem. Thank you. That is the only public comment. Commissioner's comments or questions? Commissioner Gerardo. Thank you very much for answering a couple of my questions. Sure. I appreciate that. It's a great presentation. I guess one of my concerns. Commissioner Gerardo, please turn on your microphone. 
new system. Um, thank you. I hope you heard me. Um, it, the challenges you have in hiring, um, are they salary, HR, commute, you know, just the behavioral health field? I'm assuming it's all of the above, but I just wanted to check with you and sure. is there a further outreach or recruitment plan, especially for the BERT staff? Yeah, thank you, Commissioner. It most definitely is all of the above. However, from my updates with the um, BERT director, the plan is to actually start focusing on hiring um, LVNs. And what they're going to do is to vet them through the psychiatry department and from there give them extensive training and begin to start utilizing them as birth since those resources are more available. But still, we also have the barriers that we deal with with the onboarding process. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Sure. You're welcome. Vice President Green. Well, yes, thank you for the presentation. And I just wanted to commend you and everyone at the general, first of all, for developing the concept of the BERT team. Secondly, for really thoughtfully um, thinking through protocols as well as training. And I remember you all had great confidence that this would be really a terrific, um, effective program. And it's just so heartening to hear this information, to see that it's been successful. I think beyond what we had maybe hoped, it's, it's congratulations to everyone. I think it's remarkable what you've been able to do in terms of the fall in use and force and, and just the way you've been able to uh, approach some of the uh, more conflicting interactions with such um, thought and dignity. I was wondering is as you um, see the success evolve, at what point will you change the ratios? And we've talked about staffing and especially in the sheriff's department, but as Bert um, fulfills its promise and as we get more data because it's a 24 hour day um, uh, available service, what do you think, when and how do you think these ratios of sheriffs compared to our BERT team might shift and what will that imply about about recruitment? Yeah, thank you, Commissioner. Uh, as we originally planned, we do not foresee a situation where there'll be absolutely no sheriff's deputies, uh, just based on the level of, of violence that occurs in psychiatry in the emergency department. Those role uh, positions will continue to remain and the same will be the case when it comes down to some of our community clinics as well. But what we ideally would like to see is that anything that doesn't reach to the level of a crime in progress, there's no need to get a law enforcement officer into a patient care situation. And so that's what our expectation is of BIRD. And will there, I know budgets are made quite some time in advance, but is there a moment where you feel you'll have enough data that you can shift funding more toward burden away from other other regulatory or or um I, I sure hope so. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Commissioner Christian. Thank you, President Bernal. Thank you so much for this presentation. And I, I join Commissioner Green and Commissioner Gerardo in uh thanking you and uh congratulating you for the the use of the BERT team and its success. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts that you think might be useful to share at this time about the disproportionate number of times, I would imagine, that uh, 
there's a need for assistance for Black African American people who visit the emergency department or the the, the hospital itself versus uh, whites, Latinos, uh, Latinas, and Asians. Um, you know, obviously, we're such a small percentage. Black African Americans are such a small percentage of people in the city, yet um, the percentages of are so high of uh, Black African Americans uh, who in, are in a situation where the staff needs assistance from from BERT. Uh, do you have any uh, any thoughts that can help help us understand that disparity? Sure. Thank you, Commissioner. Uh, DPH does a lot of training with regards to racism, implicit bias, and I don't believe they would do that training if it wasn't a real issue, which is reflected in who gets called, whether it be BERT or law enforcement, what races gets called, get called more than others. So you have that issue, and, and then you have the issue of just hospital set settings and the history with hospitals concerning black African-Americans, that there is a lack of trust. And so as a result, there is a reaction that, again, someone who sees that at the early stage can provide that support as opposed to getting a law enforcement person because it just acts, exacerbates and escalates the situation. Those are some of the thoughts that I had, but I certainly wanted to hear from you. So um, thank you for the work and for the presentation. Thank you, Commissioner. Other comments, questions? Uh, Mr. Price, thank you for this excellent presentation. You're certainly showing progress. And of course, uh, certainly share the concerns and questions that our fellow commissioners have about issues around equity. And thank you for continuing to address those. And just also thank you more broadly for the security that you provide for DPH and all of our staff and the people that we serve and for being so responsive to the commission and its needs as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. All right, thank you. Thank you. Permission. Thank you. All right, next on the agenda, we have item eight for discussion, the public health and safety bond update. Good afternoon, commissioner and uh, director. Is it on? It will pick up, so there's no need to bend over. That's It's oh. the bar in the front, it's not the cylinder. Okay, Yeah, yeah. thank you. So I'll uh, start all over. Uh, good evening, commissioners and director Koufax and staff. Uh, joining me, uh, my name is Mark Primo, uh, Capital Projects Oversight Advisor for the department. Joining me is Terry Saltz, the Director of Facilities from Zuckerberg General, and then uh, Chief Project Manager Joe Chin from Public Works. Let's see next. So this is just our typical um, flow of information. Uh, go to the next slide. This is something that I added uh, to show commission some of the activities that we're embarking on and are actually implementing to close a gap uh, from the 2016 bond funds that are available uh, primarily due to a lot of the issues with uh, COVID and supply chain. So the first uh, of the seven is a state grant that the department is involved with that addresses uh, behavioral health services to adolescents under the age of 25. And it also focuses in on transitional youth between the ages of 18 and 25. 
where this work will take place is in the existing main hospital, building five on a portion of the seventh floor and the sixth floor. We list it because there will be some infrastructure improvements uh, for this program that could possibly leverage and benefit the 2016 program, thereby reducing the amount of money that we would have to spend under the, on the 2016 program. So we're looking at all sorts of ways and buckets to uh, bridge a gap that Terry will talk to on slide six uh, right after I get done. We received um, our permits for increasing uh, psych emergency services, which is also in building five, which will allow us a greater capacity to treat patients coming in. Uh, a number of day rooms will increase, the space will increase. So the capacity for that unit, which is sorely needed in the city, will be enhanced. Um, we received uh, 11.4 million from the 2020 bond to help support PES. So that, that project is one of our high priorities. Um, we had done a projection on the interest earnings. So when you sell bonds over time, the treasurer invests that money and then we get interest from it. So our projection like a year ago was half of this. So we're really happy that now we have, we can go after 10.3 million and apply it to our program. Uh, we have this long-standing partnership with the San Francisco General Foundation. We just um, had an MOU approved in this fiscal year's budget for over 18 million, which will help us uh, in the 2016 program to advance design and early demo in the Family Health Care Center, uh, as well as urology. Uh, so it's also another thing that will help supplement the funds that uh, we have a deficit for. We're also currently developing uh, a future bond in 2024 in November um, that will have, amongst other things, involving Chinatown and um, building three seismic renovation, but it will also have a category of $33 million for critical infrastructure. So some of that will go to Zuckerberg General and some of it will go to Laguna Honda. This also provides potential opportunity to uh, bridge some of the budget gaps in our earlier program. The other thing that the team is doing uh, is really looking closely at some of the bids that we've received from contractors that because they were deep a year into the pandemic and afterwards, there's a lot of risk that contractors put on bids so that it increases the price of this. Some of the risk is not realistic, some of the risk is, is totally realistic. So the team went and they looked at this particular IT infrastructure, which is a lot of electrical and low voltage, and they were able to reduce $10 million from that budget. And so it's these types of activities that we're trying to do uh, that Terry will talk um, after me about bridging that gap. Um, next slide. So the next two slides basically just show you like we've had three bond sales. You can see the numbers to the far right. We're really approaching uh, almost total spending on all the funds that we received in 2016. I call your attention to the second column that says other fund sources. So this is where that additional money is coming in. The 11.4 is what we talked about for the PES. Uh, next slide, we'll talk about the community 
health centers. Oh, there we go. Okay, uh, same thing here. Uh, you see the other funding sources. We went after FEMA grants, state mental health grants, um, energy grants. And so all those reflect in uh, that second column of this chart in addition to the uh, general obligation bond measures. Okay, slide six, I'm gonna turn it over to Terry. Thank you, Mark. Good evening, commissioners. Congratulations on your new sound system. Um, it's a great improvement. Um, so this slide is a um, scary slide. Um, it's it's it's, uh, it's a draft project budget, and it's probably going to remain a draft throughout the life of, of this effort uh, because it's always changing. Um, up in the left-hand corner, you see there's a little grid there that's pointing out the, the obvious that we're one of the most expensive cities uh, to do construction in. Um, moving uh, to the, um, uh, I'd like to draw your attention to actually the, the deficit, the, the numbers in red. Um, once you total up the projects, we are looking at approximately $111 million deficit. And we are exploiting other funding sources, as Mark has pointed out, to, to bring that down. Um, the next time we're in front of you, you're going to see a much more dramatic change because we're going to take in a lot of those, those items after they come to fruition um, to, um, to abate these costs. Um, so to take the, the, the scariness out of this, I, what I'd like to point out is that while we have $111 million deficit, um, the current... Um, Items that we have in hand drop that down to um, abate it down to about $83 million. And if you um, look at the Family Health Center Clinic and the uh, Building 8090 Specialties Clinics, those numbers pretty much are equivalent to the deficit that we have. And those are two contracts that we have not um, gone out to bid for, and we, and we will not go out to bid for them until they are. Um, until we have abated or found alternative funds to support them. Um, so um, that takes, the, the, for me, it takes the scariness out of that number because um, we have a way to immediately address it. But we're still working on all the, um, the methods to bring project costs down and looking for alternative funds so we can um, uh, complete the complete package uh, on this bond. Um, and how are we, we are doing that, um, if you go to the next slide, we're doing it by um, reducing the perceived risk. Uh, Mark pointed out to um, uh, working with the contractors to reduce risk, but there's also um, um, not only in uh, um, misunderstandings of, the, of the, the bid documents, but also to listen to the contractors and hearing their concerns and, and seeing what we can do to reduce uh, the risk. Um, one of the um, uh, risks that we had with IT infrastructure was a a securitist path for the riser in the building. And so we were able to consolidate that with another project and remove that risk completely. Um, outreach, drawing in more competitors when we go out to bid, uh, early demolition, uh, removing all the problems that you find on the site early before you actually go to, to construction, um, de-scope, reducing the scope of the project, um, and, um, and then exploiting the alternative funding sources. Uh, as far as 
forecasting. Uh, there, there is a forecast of the um, the bidding environments kind of meeting the um, inflation rates uh, within in twenty twenty four. We're actually seeing that throughout the city right now. We're seeing a, a lot of improvement in the bidding environments uh, throughout the city, um, except for at, at DPH or, or except for at Zuckerberg. It's, it's still we're still experiencing pandemic pricing. We're still a, a hospital, um, and uh, we're not the, the the choice place to to bid on a project. So we're still experiencing that there. So we're going to work with our contractors to reduce any uh, fears to um, to somehow um, to to bring our our bids into a more realistic um, size and delivery. Um, with that. That's my presentation on the budget where we're at. And Joe is going to take it from here and talk about project updates. Thank you, Terry. Good evening, uh, commissioners. My name is Joe Chin, Public Works Program Manager for the 2016 Public Health and Safety Bond Program. The next two slides, we'll be providing project updates on the ZSFG Building 5 component projects. Since our last presentation in March of this year, many of the projects are slowly gaining momentum, and I'm happy to report that we are well into the core of the build-back activities. For example, on the Dallas project, the existing post-tension tendons and reinforcing steel were in direct conflict with the wall anchors for the new walls. With the completion of the ground penetrating radar and X-ray scanning of the existing slab, the design team was able to successfully navigate through the redesigned efforts and obtain HCAR approval of these changes. Which, which allowed the wall framing activities to move ahead full steam. On the Dallas project, the overall project completion is currently at 30%. Main construction activities on the third floor include wall and soffit metal stud framing with mechanical, electrical, and in-wall plumbing rough installations ongoing. There's also ongoing work on the second floor, which is the cafeteria survey area, which includes new plumbing piping in the overhead space, the ceiling space that will support the new Dallas clinic on the third floor. Project is currently targeting to complete by end of 2024. On the Public Health Lab project, the overall project completion is currently at 27%. Demolition of the, pub, the main Public Health Lab space is completed. With the approval of the infection control work plan, contractor has completed saw cutting and started the slab demolition and trenching and excavation for the new plumbing lines to support the Public Health Lab space. Wall framing has also started in various areas uh, throughout the space. Project is currently targeting to complete by the end of 2024. Next slide, please. On the seismic upgrade project, the overall project completion is currently at 30%. As you may recall, the seismic upgrade project includes discrete seismic improvement scopes, such as column enlargement, saw cutting for relief joints, removal of exterior sunshades, fiber reinforced polymer strengthening, metal plate installation, as well as construction of a new two foot wide seismic joint between building five and M-Wing. Specifically, we have completed 64 of the total 211 locations. We have 27 locations that are currently in progress with various types of work on the first floor, second floor, fourth floor, and roof level. Project is currently targeting to complete by early 2025. On the clinical laboratory track replacement project, the overall project completion is currently at 40%. The medical record phase is targeting to be completed by, the, by this month with work ongoing in the main clinical laboratory space. The new automated track equipment is scheduled to be delivered by first quarter 2024 
with the project targeting completion by early 2024. The Psychiatric Emergency Services Early Demolition Project, which is a standalone permitted project, is 99% completed with only HCI sign off remaining. The project also received HCI approval for the main renovation project on July 27. Project is currently targeting to start trade package bidding by the end of 2023, with construction starting in early 2024. In order to streamline this presentation, we have also eliminated the project update slide for the Community Health Center component projects from the slide deck since the projects have all been completed and have been occupied by DPH since 2022. The Community Health Center projects that are part of the 2016 PHS program include Maxine Hall Health Center, Castro Mission Health Center, and Southeast Health Center. That concludes my portion of the update, and let me turn it back to Mr. Primo to provide an update on the USSF projects. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Um, so this is just the timeline of the new uh, research and academic building, uh, the Pride Hall. Uh, they're really they're 100% complete in construction, and it looks like they're going to have their total move in by November sometime. So this just kind of gives you a timeline. And if you haven't gone through it, uh, it's a, an amazing building, exterior as well as the interior. So I'll open it up to questions now to the commission. Before we go to questions, any public comment? Sure. Um, let's see. I don't see a hand yet, but folks, we are on um, item eight. If you'd like to make comment, press star three. I see no hand. All right, commissioners. Uh, Commissioner Gerardo. Thank you very much, President Bernal. <clears throat> this may not be under the behavioral health uh, infrastructure, but I'm going to ask it anyhow. See about the. Um, adolescent mental health um, inpatient and outpatient uh, services and it's in the construction. Uh, is it part of the infrastructure grant or not? Or do you know the or what the update is on the project? I believe it is, but I have uh, Jason Zook, who's sort of the lead senior project manager. I know he has a migraine, but I asked him to listen in. I'm, Jason, are you there? Or would you know, Mark? We could get back to you on that. The answer is yes. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. The answer is yes, it is under the. Part of it is uh, the inpatient unit on uh, 7A and uh, the adolescent on 6 is part of that grant. Okay. And what's the status of? The construction or oh, oh nowhere near that. Okay, um, so maybe we're just, we're just trying to establish the grant at this point. In time. Yeah, we're trying right. to sign. So off. once the grant is, then it will be applied, or will some of it will be used for the adolescent, yes, outpatient yes. and it, inpatient. It has a completion date of uh, June twenty twenty seven. Okay, uh, not soon enough, but that's okay. <laughs> Thank you. Any other comments or questions, commissioners? All right, Mr. Primo, your team, thank you for the update. Thank you. Okay, our next item is item nine for discussion. It's the FY2324 and 2425 patient rates ordinance. Welcome Matthew Sir from the San Francisco Health Network uh, Reimbursement Director. Greg, are you standing in for Matt? Uh, 
not planning on. I'm just texting them. They are probably walking up the stairs right now. Oh, okay. Give me one. Sorry for the delay. There's a new sound system. No need to uh, just talk. And uh, no, no, this, um, it's the bar. So just talk regularly. It'll pick you up. Great. Um, uh, good evening, commissioners. Um, through the chair, Jenny Louie, chief financial officer. Um, We're here to present on the patient rates for 23-24. Um, um, Matt, sir, director of reimbursement, will be um, uh, going through the actual details um, of our rates. But just to introduce that, just to know, like, these rates are used to ensure adequate compensation for insurance companies, um, but otherwise has actually little impact on the rates that our patients um, pay. Um, and um, I also just want to note that this is an item that has been approved by the Board of Supervisors, and we were a little bit late um, in getting this to the commission for its approval. And um, I do regret um, the delay in getting this to the commission. So with that, I will turn it over um, to Matt, sir, who will walk through the presentation. Good evening, commissioners. Um, so I'm here, I'm Matt Sir. I'm here to present on the, uh, the patient rates for fiscal years 23-24 and 24-25. We can go to the next slide. So as Jenny mentioned, um, the, the patient rates were approved by the Board of Supervisors um, effective on July 25th. Um, the, this annual rate increase um, is essentially to ensure that, uh, that reimbursement from Medicare, Medi-Cal, and private insurance continues to, to support the services that DPH provides. Um, generally speaking, this extent, or sorry, in, specifically speaking uh, in the areas of inpatient emergency and trauma-related services, this extends the, uh, the rate um, authorization through fiscal year 23-24 and through to uh, fiscal year 24-25. And then new for this year, um, as, uh, as I believe that, uh, that we all know, um, with the CalAIM initiative, the behavioral health services um, has uh, has gone through payment reform, and uh, and this uh, this ordinance um, reflects the updated rate structure that um, that the that has been implemented by the Department of Healthcare Services um, for that payment reform initiative. Next slide, please. So, in addition to those high level changes, um, so. In terms of rate um, uniformity and changes, uh, so we've extended the inpatient emergency and trauma-related services um, rates um, an additional year. Um, all other physical health services um, are increasing by 5.6 percent in 23-24 and 2.9 percent in um, fiscal year 24-25, which is consistent. These these rate increases are consistent with the controller's office CPI fees and fines guidance. Another thing that we've done is we've consolidated, in terms of the ordinance, we've consolidated the rates for evaluation and management services across the network. Essentially, what has happened is that um, we were previous in previous ordinances we were listing the evaluation and management services or EM services in, in, in each um, divisional um, section to make it easier because we were 
consistent with the rates across the, the board to make it easier, we've consolidated those rates so that they're only reflecting at the health network level now um, it, within the ordinance itself. So just a technical uh, fix that we've made. Um, and then we expect to reevaluate um, the, uh, the patient rates relative to our market peers um, to determine whether rates should be adjusted um, in, the, in the future. And next slide. And then the last piece, just under, uh, just to note on the behavior health payment reform. So as you know, the behavior health payment reform um, is designed to support whole person integrated care, move the administration of the Medi-Cal benefit um, or the Medi-Cal behavioral health uh, payment system to a more consistent and seamless system. Um, and uh, DHCS is transitioning counties started effective on July 1st from a cost-based reimbursement methodology um, to a fee-for-service structure um, where CPT code um, reimbursement rates will be, will be paid. And then all of the behavioral health um, rates that we changes that we've made this year and for 24-25 all reflect the rates that have been established by the Department of Healthcare Services. So I do want to touch on a couple of points that were asked, asked by uh, the commissioners. Um, so in terms of our ENM rates, um, so while when we when we review our ENM rates, um, most of the ENM or evaluation management services that DPH provides are within our um, primary care clinics, which are all FQHCs or federally qualified health centers, and so. The, the sort of the payment rates for be, as being an FQHC or federally qualified health center um, are, are a bit higher than normal fee-for-service rates. And so we have those um, higher rates than, than you might find in a private practice. Um, in terms of um, the, the liabilities that, um, that pay our patients face, the, we don't, so this ordinance and our increases in rates don't affect um, or should not affect the amount that patients are liable for. As you know, in 2019, we went through um, a whole host of different um, changes to our, um, our patient collection or patient liability uh, policies, including patient cap uh, or patient cap, sliding scale changes, um, and broad scale changes to our balance billing uh, policies. I think we've also, you know, over the past couple of years, between the No Surprises Act, AB 1020, um, we have all we we come in compliance with all with with those rules either through the patient cap, or sorry, either through those 2019 ordinance uh, changes to policies or to um, or just in compliance or to changes in compliance or changes to policies in compliance with uh, with uh, with those legislative uh, uh, changes or updates. Um, so with that, I think uh, if you have any questions, I am available to answer. Thank you, Mr. Sir. Secretary Moritz, do we have any uh, public comment? There's nobody on the line at this time. Nobody on the line. Okay. Commissioner's comments or questions? Commissioner Guillermo. Thank you for your presentation. I had uh, one question about the um, reevaluation of the patient rates that you're planning to do uh, uh, relative to market peers. Uh, can you describe a little bit um, or, well, let us uh, know when that reevaluation uh, process is going to start or to occur, and then uh, when you say market peers, are you talking about um, other public health, uh, hospital systems or nonprofits that uh, systems or uh, for-profit systems that have uh, Medi-Cal and Medicare yeah, uh, patient populations? So thank, thank yeah. you for your question. Yeah. Um, so, so, so in terms of engaging with uh, um, with uh, uh, or to to review our our uh, 
uh, patient rates that compare to market peers. I think you know sometime in the in the next year or or two years, I think is what I would foresee. Um, we've I think we've been um, since 2019, we've paused on increasing the rates for trauma in certain emergency services, and that's and and I think it's you know it's it's. It's become a point, or it's come to a point where we probably need to, you know, it's it's time to to review. So, so I know that we're working with the controller's office um, on on engaging with um, in in a study, um, and so I expect to happen that to happen, um, you know, within within the next couple of years. Um, and then uh, to your question about who are our market peers, I think that you know certainly um, large public healthcare systems um, in and especially in California would likely be um, peers, but in terms of defining exactly who that might be, I think we would allow um, that market study, um, whoever we engage with, um, to define who that, um, who our market peers are, or to help define who the, those market peers are. Thank you. Vice President Green. Yes, I, I just had a question, and it may not apply to many uh, patients, but there are certain numbers of people, I think, who go to FQHCs who unfortunately have bronze plans or plans with huge deductibles, you know, several thousand dollars. So if they do show up in our primary care clinics, how are we managing these patients in terms of their, you know, cost? Because I know it's been a conundrum for other FQHCs in uh, Northern California. They've actually put some of these people on sliding scales for reimbursement because they will never, I mean, $300 is a huge sum. And indeed, as you set these fees higher than they might be in, in practice, how are you managing that? And maybe a small group of, of people, but how would you manage those individuals? Yeah, so th thank you for your question. I think that I will have to take that as a, as a follow-up item. I, would, I think the, the one thing that I will say about um, your question is that, uh, that the large population of, of our patient, pop or the large portion of our patient population um, has Medi-Cal coverage, and so it lives under the, um, the, the Medi-Cal FQHC program. Um, and so I'd have to, we'd have to research um, you know, the uh, individuals with bronze plans if, we're, if, um, if we were to see that, those individuals um, for regular care what would our what what is our um, payment schedule, or what do we expect in terms of um, reimbursement? I really appreciate that because with the redetermination, it may be that there are people who shift to these exchange plans, and it could affect. I mean, we we were so diligent. I remember, especially Mr. Wagner and his team, when we noticed that people, especially on the trauma service at the general, um, were were getting these uh, bills, and that was, I think, before the No Surprises Act came to pass. You were way ahead of that um, reform. But I think it might be useful to try to figure it out because it, it may be that the volume increases. And I do see Dr. Horton's hand raised. Is that correct, Dr. Horton? That is correct. I just wanted to say to the extent um, that the question was about in primary care clinics, since we don't have exchange covered California, et cetera, patients in primary care, we don't have a contract there. Um, we really have mostly now managed Medi-Cal patients with some Medicare and healthy San Francisco. And so... Um, for at least in the primary care world, uh, we are not seeing, um, uh, we're seeing a very, very small number of patients, mostly in the self-pay category, who sometimes have higher bills, but for the most part, we can get everything covered they need. But I, I do recognize the question. I think it's an important one, especially for the uh, inpatient services. No, thank you. And I, I will be curious with this redetermination because there may be some individuals who end up on these plans but want to stay with their primary care. I don't know, you know how it's going to affect San Francisco, especially with all the extra programs we have. But I know it, some people are getting insured through employers and their horrible plans and they still want to go to the places where they've gotten care. Th thanks very much. Appreciate the question. No other comments or questions? 
Thank you, Mr. Sir. Thank you. Next, we'll go to the Joint Conference Committee report from the uh, ZSFG JCC meeting on August 22nd, 2023. I'm going to hand this over to Vice President Green and ask her that she hold the gavel for the rest of the meeting as well. I excuse myself. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, President Brunel. At the August 22nd, 2023 ZSFG JCC meeting, we, dis we discussed a robust presentation on achieving safe and equitable patient care. And it included many metrics they follow at the hospital, most of which they have met or, or actually exceeded with very rare exceptions during which they, for which they have excellent uh, uh, plans of approach. And they're including falls and uh, hospital acquired pressure injuries, which are probably the ones that were the greatest focus, but also catheter associated bladder infections, colon surgical site infections, um, and uh, hospital acquired infections in general. So of course, a key component of this is looking at it through an equity lens. And I think they're doing a really terrific job of trying to gather data so we can better understand um, this information in, 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 through the lens of equity. Then the CEO report, in addition to hearing about the celebrations that um, were reviewed in the director's report today, um, we, we also celebrated the additional star that um, the general got from CMS, which is quite an accomplishment, especially because it's reflective of data from uh, really before uh, the last few years. So we are absolutely on an upward trajectory. And I think the improvements they've, they made on all these parameters are yet to be reflected in the STAR system. In addition to that, um, you know, we heard how involved the leadership that the general is at, in, um, in, um, in uh, uh, advocating for public health hospitals in um, the kind of disproportionate aspects of the STAR ratings. And of course, we heard the usual committee reports, which is the regulatory affairs report, the um, uh, uh, hiring and vacancy report. And then um, the uh, we're, we're really privileged every month to get reports from different uh, departments at um, the general and uh, the, the pediatric department in particular is so impressive every time we hear these and hear the breadth of the work they do from patient care to research to um, uh, inspiration on all levels. It's it's really a, a wonderful experience to hear these reports. So we um, recommended the uh, what's on the consent calendar and then in the Closed session, we heard, we approved the uh, PIPs minutes and we got a credentialing report that we also approved. All right, and I'm back. Thank you, Vice President Green. Uh, any public comment? There's no one on the line. All right, any comments or questions from commissioners? All right, thank you very much. Seeing none, we'll move to the next item, other business. Is there any other business? Any public comments on other business? And there's any nobody. questions or comments? None. Okay, we will uh, entertain a motion to adjourn. So move. Second. Second. All right. Nobody's on the public comment line. All of those in favor of adjournment? Aye. Aye. Opposed? We are adjourned. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, SFGov TV. Sorry, before we end, uh, thank you very much to Secretary Mark Morowitz for all of his work to get our new audio and video system in place as well. Much improved, and thank you for being so persistent in getting this done, Mark. Oh, sure. Well, it's the DPHIT folks, but yes, thank you, everyone. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. And get that in the minutes, please. <laughs>